you know it's family camp when the kids are in the room and then they're asked to leave the room and half the camp is gone. <laughs> it really is a, a family camp. All right, well, I have uh, two goals this morning, two different uh, sessions I'm going to present. Uh, the first is on uh, the idea of a biblical theology of evangelism. And I would like to ask you to open up in your Bibles. Uh, we're actually going to read from two texts. First, turn to Joshua chapter 1. And then we'll turn from there to Matthew 28. And since my evil twin is still in the room, I will ask you to do what every baseball player would ask, which is stand up. Let's keep our, our habits uh, consistent. If you don't mind, please stand if you're able. And we'll read from Joshua 1, uh, verses 1 through 9, and then we'll turn from there to Matthew 28. And, and as we're reading together, I want you to pay attention to uh, some of the ideas that we hear in Joshua 1 that we'll hear again when we turn to Matthew 28, okay? Things related to the Great Commission. Uh, this is the Word of God. Let's hear it together carefully. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I'm going to give them, <clears throat> that I'm giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the soul of your feet will tread upon, I have given you, just as I promised to Moses, from the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was, was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go." Now turn over to Matthew 28. Matthew 28, at the very end of the chapter. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray together. Lord our God, we thank you for your word, for it truly is a lamp for our feet and a light for our footsteps. We pray with the psalmist as well that you might help us 
uh, to hide your word in your heart, our hearts, that we might not sin against you. Uh, we ask, Lord, that you'd help us to think now about the big picture of the Bible, how it not only focuses upon the person and work of Jesus Christ, but how the Great Commission and our part in that unfolding story are revealed from the beginning to the end of the Bible as well. Have your way with our hearts, we pray. Be glorified in our midst. Through Christ our Savior, we ask all these things. Amen. Please be seated. I never quite get used to these Justin Bieber microphones. And I can't dance, so it's not really doing a lot for me, but it's okay. Well, so what I'd like to do this morning in our first session uh, is talk about a biblical theology of evangelism. And I put this up early front and center because I'd like to suggest that everything else we're going to talk about this week while related to the same topic has to be grounded really firmly, strongly rooted uh, in the Bible itself. So if we're going to talk about the idea of evangelism and the life and the work of the church, uh, we need to talk about the way that evangelism permeates the whole Bible. And you're probably used to the idea of seeing Christ uh, in, in all Scripture, or at least in, in nuanced ways, uh, that He really is the glue that binds the pages of the Bible together, uh, that He is uh, the meta story that makes sense of every little story, the story of the Gospel itself. Uh, this was a big deal for me. Uh, I went to a non-reformed Bible college. Uh, in fact, uh, I met my wife who, I, I don't know, okay, let me look real quick. Sometimes you have to look first before you say things. Just be on the smart side. So I don't see her. So you'll have a little bit of fun with this. Okay? I'm, just, I'm just giving you something that will come back to bite me a little bit later, but it's camp, so we can take a few liberties. So when I was a young, single guy, a uh, new Christian, I told a little bit of that story last night, went to Bible college, and I was resolved until I got married to live uh, as much as I could a godly, purity, uh, pure uh, life, and to uh, wait for some of the wonderful joys of marriage for my spouse. And I went to Bible college, and I, I've kept like a journal with questions and, and prayer issues forever. And, and for the longest time, I was praying, this is the part that my wife will be fantastically happy to hear, I echoed. Uh, but this is true. I was praying for a godly, athletic hippie chick. <laughs> now, if she were here, this is why I had to look, just to kind of see what sort of reaction I'd get from her. Uh, she likes the godly and the athletic part, but she's never really connected with the hippie chick part. But the first time I saw her, she walked into her school cafeteria. Uh, her dad was the president of my Bible college. Uh, she came in, she was barefoot, she was wearing this beautiful broom skirt, she had this one long braid down the side of her head. I looked at her, and just all the right music started playing in the background in my mind, and I knew that very first moment, and this is really true, the first time I ever saw Heather, I knew that was the woman that I was going to marry, and she always quips at this point that it's really good I didn't tell her that. <laughs> so you can decide how much of that you want to play back. Um, all right, so, so that Bible college was uh, kind of Baptist, dispensational. If we have any Baptist friends here, please don't be offended by that. It's just the orientation of my school. Hi, honey. <laughs> <laughs> Moving right along. Well, so while I was in Bible college, I bet she can guess what I was just talking about. 
Uh, you know, we, we memorized tons and tons and tons of Bible verses. In fact, nearly every class that I had uh, began with a scripture memory requirement. So you'd memorize, it could be Joshua 1, 8, 9, it could be Psalm 119, 9, 11, it could just be anywhere in the Bible. But literally every class every day of the week began uh, with scripture memory. And I was never very good at math and a number of other subjects. So I was pretty good at memorizing and so we'd memorize all these Bible verses, but imagine that you've got a great big bowl. And in that bowl, you've got a bunch of pearls with holes in them. If you want to make a necklace, what do you need? It's a very bright crowd. Yes. Uh, if you want to make a necklace out of a bunch of pearls, you need string. Bible college for me was like being given a bowl full of pearls. All these different Bible verses, old and New Testaments, which I had kind of tucked away. Uh, but there wasn't a whole lot of string. There wasn't a whole lot of glue uh, to hold these things together. And really, it wasn't until I went to seminary and began to discover some authors, including a lot of Dutch guys, believe it or not, uh, who helped me understand this beautiful connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, I live in a city uh, named St. Augustine. I, I think uh, Pastor Pontier last night was uh, debating briefly whether or not to say St. Augustine or St. Augustine. Uh, so I, I'm going to tell you now how to resolve that dilemma, which I'm, I'm sure keeps many of you awake at night. Is it St. Augustine or Augustine? Well, here's the way you do it. St. Augustine is the guy. St. Augustine is the place. So I live in St. Augustine. You read books about St. Very bright crowd. We've got this. Okay, so that's all for free. So, uh, St. Augustine said that the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed, and the Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. Okay, uh, So a lot of people have made the observation, this is very old, this is in the church fathers as well, that when you read the Old Testament, you still are reading the story of the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's just there in a seed form, Right? Uh, then you get to the New Testament, and you're still reading about the personal work of Jesus Christ, the covenant of redemption, and God's plan to save a people for Himself through His precious Son and our Savior. But when you get to the New Testament, uh, that seed is fully grown. Uh, one of my favorite authors I mentioned last night, a guy named Gerhardus Voss, he can be your favorite author too. I'm willing to share him. Uh, so he makes a great little point that when you look at the Old Testament, it's like looking at a seed, right? If you've got a seed, I'm sure a lot, a lot of you out here like to garden, stuff like that. Uh, a seed and a rose. What's the difference? I think I heard somebody say it. Time, right? They're the same thing. Organically, in terms of their DNA, what's on the inside, the only difference between a seed and a beautifully blossomed rose is time, or we might say it like this, history. If you give a seed enough time, it'll eventually blossom and become a rose. Well, I think that's actually a great way to think about the Bible. Sure, there are differences between the Old and New Testament, and sure, there are differences between seeds and roses, but the two actually come together in the person and work of Christ and really are a part of the same thing, right? Uh, you can say this a few different ways. The Bible, uh, is it one story or many stories? Now, if you're at our church, you know a lot of times the answer to a question like that is yes. Okay? Is Jesus God or is Jesus man? Yes. Is God one God or three persons? Yes. You were a little slow on that one. <laughs> anyway. Okay. Is God sovereign or is man responsible? This is getting a little bit easier, okay? 
so when you think about uh, the Bible, it is on the one hand a whole lot of little stories, but ultimately it's a whole lot of little stories that compose one, one big beautiful story. Uh, you can think about books and even book series. They're on the one hand uh, an individual book and yet part of a series. And then even within an individual book, you've got different scenes or stages that are set and they each unfold their little mini narrative, which is a part of a broader narrative. You think about this in plays, right? Lots of things do this where uh, something here that is a part is a part of a larger whole. And so what I'm going to talk about today is, is not narrowly uh, the idea of seeing Christ in the Old Testament. That's not really my goal. It's actually to see the Great Commission in the Old Testament. And what I want to really try to uh, pin down, something I introduced last night, is that the Great Commission that we read in Matthew 28 does not begin in Matthew 28. And if you're persuaded of that, then you begin to realize, okay, the whole Bible really is, to a large extent, about God's plan to glorify Himself uh, through the gathering together of a kingdom, a church, a people who will worship Him. And that's not uh, this redemptive plan that comes into the picture much, much later in history. It was always that way. Uh, one of the things that really troubled me about my early theological education uh, was this great divide, this large wall uh, put between the Old and the New Testament that basically func functioned like this. Uh, the Old Testament is for Israel, and the New Testament is for the church. In my view, that's divorcing something that God has drawn together, right? Uh, the whole thing is for the church. Sure, it's about the people of Israel in early form, uh, but that's, uh, as our associate pastor likes to say it, uh, the church under age. But she finally comes to maturity uh, in uh, the church in Jesus Christ. So, uh, let's just think about then uh, a number of things from the Old Testament we're going to do uh, a little bit of bicycling. There's a little cliche that sometimes uh, talks about bicycling through the pages of the Bible, so why not? Let's bicycle a little bit together. Uh, you can turn your Bible pages if you would like to. We're going to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. Uh, remember the speaker's always set at ease when he hears that sound, but you can't do that with your iPhone or your iPad. They make no comforting sounds. They're copies of real life. Real books. So why have the fake when you can have the real thing? All right, I digress. Do whatever you want. Sort of. Okay, so uh, Genesis 1.28. Going all the way back at the beginning of the Bible, uh, God gives a commission here right out, of, right out of the gate. In the very first inning, a baseball player might say, if one happened to be such. Genesis 1, 28, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living creature that moves on the earth. <clears throat> now, we call the Great Commission the Great Commission. And I get that, but uh, being both playful and serious, what's so great about it? Why do we call it the Great Commission? What, what does calling it great imply about other commissions? Are there other commissions? If so, are they less great? Is the Great Commission the only commission in the Bible? Well, no. In fact, it's one of a handful of commissions. We can call it uh, the Great Commission in the sense of being uh, the consummate commission. 
Uh, but even that becomes a bit of a play on words as we're going to talk about here for a moment. Uh, because as soon as God creates Adam in the, and puts him in the garden, uh, He says to Adam, this is even before the creation of Eve, He says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Uh, now, I spend a lot of time uh, up in Canada, and I've got a lot of Dutch friends. Uh, they have a, a way of describing this. They refer to this as evangelism between the sheets. It's a great phrase. It's evangelism between the sheets. God made man and woman. He made them biologically distinct. He made them capable of procreation. He designed that in the confines of marriage, a man and a woman should enjoy great joy, and the fruit of that joy uh, would be children. And, and by, that is how you got here. Right? And not only that, uh, but all this is beautiful and pure. Please note, this is not only before the creation of Eve, she comes, chapter 2, right? But it's also before the entrance of sin. And this is a big deal to me. Before sin entered the world, God designed that man and woman together, uh, in the beauty and joy of creation, with all the goodness, purity, and beauty that God infused creation with, that they should create children that they should procreate children. And this is the goal, right? Uh, the goal was not simply for the joy and pleasure of Adam and Eve, as much of that as there may be, uh, but the goal in a very large sense was to populate a kingdom of those who would glorify and enjoy God forever. The chief end of man is built into the very framework of creation itself. Man would come through the creation, through the creative work, the procreative work of Adam and Eve, and from them would come a kingdom of God worshipers, of image bearers, of servants in the kingdom of God who would find great joy in God Himself and would know God apart from sin. That was the grand design. So we call the Great Commission in Matthew 28 the Great Commission, uh, but here's a point I doubt you'll push back on. It's not the first commission. This is the first commission here in Genesis chapter 1. And part of that commission was to populate a kingdom of those who would glorify and enjoy God. Uh, in a certain sense, uh, this is the purest commission because this commission comes apart from the context of sin itself. Now there's just a very simple little problem. Okay, uh, This commission gets messed up. Who messes it up? Adam. Right? Adam, who was to be a prophet, a priest, and a king, uh, who was to be a faithful servant in the kingdom of God, uh, a gardener in the garden of God, right? Uh, one who was to be protective of not only his wife, uh, but even the holy place where God dwelled in the midst there in the garden. Okay? And Adam fails to do what he's supposed to do. He does what he's not supposed to do. And the effect of that is sin enters the world. So what happens to that commission when sin enters the world? Well, here's the reality. Everything gets, I'm going to use a very precise theological term now, everything gets all jacked up. It's, it's all messed up. Everything in the world now is broken because of the sin that enters into the picture in Genesis 3. Uh, there, there are just endless shades of depravity that have come into the world and have affected as well the great or first commission. So what does God do? Does He bail on His plan? Does He say, alright, I'm done. I'm out of here. This is it. Scratch. Done. I'm checked out. No. Uh, as soon as sin enters the world, God begins to make all kinds of beautiful promises. He says in Genesis 3.15, alright, you guys have blown it. 
and yet nevertheless from you. This is just such grace, right? Nevertheless, from you, in keeping with Genesis 1.28, someone is going to come, a seed of the woman, right? Who will eventually come and do what Adam failed to do. Lay down his life for his bride and slay the serpent. Protect the glory, honor, and the kingdom of God. Not only that, Genesis 3.21, God gives to them uh, animal skins to clothe themselves. I I live next to an older, very sweet English couple, and they they just have like the Midas touch when it comes to plants. Everything in their yard looks like it's on steroids. And they've got this fig bush. And I've stared at this thing just so many times. If you look at a fig bush long enough, you realize we're really not that bright. To think that our very first parents sinned against God and they, they did what? Like, I mean, this is almost like a child comic book, right? They ran into the trees hiding from God. And then they took fig leaves. If you ever looked at fig leaves, I mean, I just try to imagine. Like, was there a conversation about this? What do you think about these? <laughs> Will this look good on me? <laughs> Does it make my hips look big? Do you think God will still see us if we have these on? Fig leaves. And they sew together fig leaves. And God takes those away. Genesis 3.21, He puts something to death. You know the first to offer live sacrifices in the Bible? It's God. Genesis 3.21, it says, The Lord made garments of skin for Adam and Eve, and He clothed them, signifying that He would do for them what they could not do. But with that promise, the verbal promise, seed of the woman, uh, a, a sacramental promise, if you will, in clothing them with this first sacrifice of sorts. Uh, he goes on to do other things that very significantly make it clear uh, that God is going to preserve this commission idea. So you come down just a little bit quickly to Noah, no particular uh, reference that you need to turn at this point, several long chapters. But just, just think about what you know about Noah. In Noah, we are told that God is on the one hand going to destroy the world in judgment, and at the same time, he's going to preserve a remnant for himself. By the way, it always is a little bit of an irony to me that like in every nursery, every church that has any, like if the church has ever had crayons or paint, you've got a picture of Noah and the animals in the ark, right? It's a little bit of an irony to that. The day God consumes the world in a gulp of divine judgment, and we paint that picture on side, you know, every little nursery, and the, every animal's like smiling, and Noah and his family are like, the whole world's out there in the water. It is a bit of an irony. And it says in 2 Peter 2.5 that Noah uh, was a preacher of righteousness. Great phrase. What do people think of me as that? A preacher of righteousness. You get the sense. Here's Noah literally uh, standing against the tide of the entire world's depravity Standing for righteousness, calling people to repentance, preaching. He wasn't just simply a boat builder. He's called a preacher. That's a great phrase. Catch the nuance there. You think of Noah as a builder. Peter thought of him as a preacher. Noah, preacher of righteousness, who in his day opposed uh, the ungodliness. Uh, Nisbet, an old Puritan author, says he's called a preacher of righteousness because even in that time did he hold forth to the people the way of free justification by the righteousness of Christ and the duties of holiness wherein justified persons ought to walk. Pretty neat to hear an old Puritan talk about Noah preaching about the righteousness of Christ. It's good stuff. 
Okay? Another author, Noah performed his prophetic preaching as the mouth of the Spirit of Christ, that Spirit presence from whom all true prophets were sent forth in the judicial administration of God's covenant. So here's the deal. God comes in judgment. And Noah stands as a preacher saying, look, this isn't good. Everything looks good right now, but it's about to start raining. And it's not going to stop raining until God consumes the world in judgment. You've got to turn. You've got to repent and believe. Noah is described as preaching and doing his work in the time of God's patience just before the coming of uh, the flood. Similarly, Jude 14 refers to Enoch in about the same time period uh, who prophesied this coming judgment. So here, here's my point. All the way back, even in the days of the flood, God sent preachers, not just judgment. He sent preachers to proclaim a message of hope, whatever hope there might be. Perhaps they were going to drown, but there still might be hope for their souls. You come after that to Abraham. And Abraham and Israel, two that I want to camp on for just uh, a little bit longer than I have the earlier, uh, the earlier pieces. Uh, because Abraham really is a, a significant figure and a very missional figure. And I, I think that we don't treat or think of the guys quite this way. And if we did, it might make us get even more excited about what God is doing in the Old Testament. Uh, Abraham is one we refer to as the father of many nations. How do you not hear the Great Commission in that? Right? If the Great Commission is go into all the world... Abraham is the father of many nations. But wait a minute, isn't he kind of the father of Israel? So what is it? Well, here's the point. It began with Israel, but it certainly doesn't stop with Israel. But nevertheless, even in Abraham's own life, you actually see, kind of like we saw last night with Jethro and Moses, you see quite a bit of interaction with Gentiles. Which, by the way, uh, what was Abraham before he became a Jew? Gentile. One person responded to that. Okay, but the rest of you knew the answer, right? Of course you did. Okay, so Abraham was a Gentile before God called him out and he became a Jew. Uh, Ian Duggan uh, refers to Abraham as a miniature Jesus in that the promises to Abraham are clearly fulfilled in Christ himself. That is three things. God promised to Abraham a land, land of Canaan, Seed, multiple number of people that come from him, and one who would be blessing to the nations. Well, you get uh, all of that ultimately fulfilled in Christ, right? Uh, where is the real promised land that you look forward to going to? Is it a piece of real estate in the Middle East? No, it's heaven. You can't miss that. Hebrews 11, I spent quite a lot of bit of time uh, in my dissertation working on Hebrews 11. It's my favorite chapter. In fact, when I was an intern at Harvest uh, 100 years ago, before I had any gray hair and when Mark could still jump, <laughs> that was really therapeutic for me, honestly. <laughs> so <clears throat> I, had this, uh, I had this file. I, I preached through Hebrews 11. It was like that thick now. And now it's like multiple fi uh, files thick. Uh, Hebrews 11 is just a very dear chapter to me. And when you look at the little stretch there on Abraham, it's really interesting. The author of Hebrews says that when Abraham was living in the land and the, uh, his descendants after him, Isaac and Jacob, uh, they all lived in these tents. Why did they live in tents? We're camping. Are any of you tenting? We're glamping. <laughs> okay, well, you know what a tent is, right? 
had those in the Old Testament before air conditioning. So Abraham and his descendants, uh, Jacob, Isaac and Jacob, all live in tents while living in the land that was theirs. Why is that? Well, because they're saying with their life, this earth isn't my home. I'm a pastor through here. I'm visiting. This land, it's just dirt, right? That's, that's not my eternal inheritance. That's just sand. That stuff passes through your fingers. My real home is up there, not down here, okay? And then how about the, the seed? God says to Abraham, I'm going to give you children as innumerable as the sand on the seashore. Have you gone out to the beach and even thought about counting? Just grab a handful. See if you're, if you're faithful enough to just count one handful of sand. You won't finish. Grain by grain. Well, where is that seed? It's ultimately the church, right? Okay? And then uh, the blessing to all the nations. That's Christ. The descendant of Abraham, who is at the same time Abraham's Lord. In Abraham's life, he has these little uh, moments where he goes before different kings or uh, other priests that he runs into, and with them, <clears throat> he becomes a missionary. In many respects, Abraham was a missionary. As he sent into the land, uh, he goes as one who is bearing the Word of God, uh, proclaiming the covenant promises that have been given by God. And in Abraham, you really see uh, first fruits, if you will, of the Great Commission. So, you might say it like this. If in Christ we inherit Abraham's blessing, do you believe that? You inherit Abraham's blessing? Do you think of yourselves as sons and daughters of Abraham? You are. And if you inherit Abraham's blessing, then you also inherit Abraham's mission. Abraham was sent on a mission not just to go and to grab some land for himself and just kind of hoard this land and it be all his. Abraham was sent into the land to be a missionary. And as I'm saying that, begin thinking about Israel. We're not quite there, but close. So uh, another author says of Abraham, the history of mission is the history of the spread of God's blessing. And this is the particular point. The history of God keeping His promise to Abraham. God said to Abraham, I'll make you fruitless, fruitful upon fruitful. A father of many nations. I'm going to give you, ultimately, the covenant promise which is fulfilled in Christ. But Abraham was to be not simply a bearer of the covenant, excuse me, a recipient of the covenant, but a bearer of it. Let me say it one last different way. Uh, in Hebrews 11, it becomes real clear that what God is doing is not simply witnessing to His people, telling them about things to come, but witnessing through His people. So as they receive the blessing, they are also in their life as they go proclaiming the blessing. As they receive the gospel and look forward to it, they proclaim the gospel with their lives. This is very strong in Abraham, and it becomes simply the identity of the people of God. So that when you begin to think about Israel, what is Israel called, if not a light to the nations? Israel's job was not to go into the land and build high walls and keep the world out. Rather, no, it was to go in and be literally like a light set up on top of a hill and to usher the nations in. Come and worship Yahweh. Come and worship the Lord of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. Come and be in the presence of the one who said, I will be your God and you will be my people. 
the commands given to Israel were to show by way of contrast that God is a righteous and holy God. The sacrifices given to Israel was to show that God is a just and merciful God, right? Uh, Old Puritans used to say that, that justice is the foundation of the throne of God. Mercy may be its seat, but justice is its foundation. And Israel was to proclaim that with her life to the nations around. She was truly to be a city set upon a hill. And so you see that then, like with last night, right? With the plagues in Egypt, uh, that God is going to knock down all of His enemies, redeem a people for Himself. And what happens as they go from Egypt to Canaan? The nations here. By the time they get to Jericho, they're like, they're like shaky need. The inhabitants of those cities are afraid of them. Why? Because Yahweh is coming. And this is a God uh, with whom we ought not to trifle. You're either on His side or you're on the wrong side. You're either following Him unto life or you're about to experience death. He's God. He hasn't come to negotiate. He's come to command. He demands loyalty. He demands surrender. But He's a good King. He's a gracious King. One author says, the Exodus was not a movement from slavery to freedom, but from slavery to covenant, and covenant that came with a mission. Israel is given beautiful things. You, beloved, have been given wonderful treasures in the covenant, but with that covenant comes a missional identity. As long as you are in the world, it's that you might also proclaim to the world the goodness of your covenant God. In fact, to separate one from the other, it's kind of like saying, I'd like a credit card, but I'm not going to pay my bills. Well, you, I mean, I guess you can, maybe that's not the best analogy, but at least it works for like four seconds. Because you know, to quote the old uh, commercial, that with membership comes what? Privileges, but also responsibilities. And part of our responsibilities as the people of God is to carry forward the good news. Now I want to talk about Joshua for just a minute. Joshua to me is a fantastic text. Uh, I am, I'm not, probably not supposed to say things like this, but I'm a very honest guy, or at least I try to be. Uh, I am, uh, I think in many ways, very... Uh, I, I describe myself as being all millennial, but I was telling a friend over breakfast, and yet so many times I practice like I'm really quite post-mill. So maybe I'm just confused. And maybe those terms mean absolutely nothing to you, and if so, that's, that's probably okay. But when you look at Joshua 1, uh, what you can't miss is language that you'll hear again in the Great Commission. And this is a big deal to me. This is a really big deal. It sets up something very beautiful. Like, this should move you. If this doesn't move you, I want to talk to you. I'm going to move you. <laughs> Threatening preacher from Florida. Okay? So in Joshua 1, God says, Moses, my servant, is dead. You're up. Time for you to go. And he says to Joshua, and this is what you're going to do. You're going to go into the land. You're going to destroy the Amorites, the Hittites, the Jerobites, the Hivites, can't sleep at nights, the termites, the bug bites. What else you got? The what? It's the lag tights? Okay, you're way too smart for me. <laughs> I couldn't spell that word for a free pizza, and I'd do almost anything for free pizza. So Joshua and the Israelites, who by the way are not a trained people of war, right? I mean, these are just a bunch of farmers from the Midwest. That's great. I can't believe I've never said that before. 
These are not a war people. These are not a trained army. And they're to go in and topple war nations that are skilled at this, that have been prepared for invasions, that have high walls, trained soldiers, sharp swords, uh, polished spears. Israel to go in, uh, this tiny little runt of a nation just brought out of Egypt, barely even able to tell it's left from its right, and they're to take over this land, right? Uh, this is intimidating, okay? Uh, this is really intimidating. This is like a little game my son and I play where he's supposed to take something out of my hand, I just hold it there and watch. We can do this all day. Humanly speaking, not a shot, right? But God says to Joshua and through him to the people of Israel something amazing. Don't be afraid. Don't be frightened. Be strong. Be courageous. I've got this. You don't have this. You're right. The odds don't look good. But I've got this. So be very strong and very courageous. And then as you go in, you will have victory. But there's this wonderful promise attached that I think is like the make or break aspect of the commission given to Joshua. And that is this. As you go, I will be with you. Israel has no strength in herself. Slave nation now brought out. Like farmers from the Midwest with no weapons. But I will be with you. And that's why you will succeed. You can bank on that, right? But what are they supposed to go and do in particular? This is the hard part. What they're to go and do in particular is to go into the land of Canaan and strike down all the inhabitants of the land and to kill them, literally to put them uh, to death. Israel is to go in and strike down the inhabitants of the land, kill, put them to death, drive them away so that the very temple of God might be established in the center of the land. And what's the, what's the point of that? People, theologians, people struggle with it all the time. How could God say do that? Well, it's not because of something arbitrary or capricious about God. It's not to say uh, that He's just an evil God. It's rather because He's a holy God and He will not dwell in the midst of a sinful people. Uh, he is like a giant rock hitting the water and He will displace everything else around Him until there's only holiness to the Lord in His midst. That's the point. And so Israel is to go and to strike with the edge of the sword. But I want you to notice a profound difference a strikingly profound difference when you think about what God does now in the New Testament and in the Great Commission in particular, uh, because some of the language is similar, right? Uh, Jesus died, but He rose again. He goes to this mountain that they've been directed to wait for Him at, and when they see Him, some worship Him and some doubt it. Sounds just like us, right? And He says to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Why? Because this is the triumphant Son of God. This is the one who was promised in Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman who would come and crush the head of the seed of the serpent. Okay? Uh, this is the one who was promised would descend from Abraham and would be a blessing to the nations, a glorious king who would usher in a new kingdom and with it an even finer land than Israel had ever seen, tasted, or touched. This is the one uh, who is a greater soldier than Joshua could ever be. Why? Because as good and great as Joshua was, Joshua died and could not triumph over death. 
from Moses to Joshua to all the leaders of Israel, death is clearly the biggest problem. But Jesus has triumphed over death. And the one who can triumph over death, now be with me here, the one who can triumph over death triumphs over everything. And everyone. This is what a true king looks like. Any king can put somebody to death. But only the king of heaven can give people life. Eternal life. As the old hymn goes, our creator, maker, redeemer, and friend. And this is Jesus, who's triumphed now. Who's come back to his disciples and said, okay, I've just triumphed over everything that you fear. I mean, I'm such a wimp, right? When you think about it, Jesus has triumphed over everything that you and I fear, and we're still afraid. Everything that actually intimidates, he's already subdued, but we're still afraid. Tells you a lot about us, why we need to learn more about him. But once you notice what's profoundly different about the Great Commission, this is what I think is a really just fantastic deal and reversal. I love poetry, I like literature, I like to read, I don't like to watch movies a whole lot but I'm trying. So when you look at the Great Commission or the Joshua Commission, the Land Commission, it's to go and to put things to death with the edge of the sword, but not the Great Commission in Jesus. The church is given a commission. It's even a commission to go to the nations, but it's not to put them to death, right? I mean, just to make sure we're all clear. Our commission now is not to go out and put the nations to death. We are all straight on that. I'd like us to be straight on that. A lot of reasons why that would be important. But we have a commission. And your king says, as you've been armed, go, but not to bring death with a metal sword, but rather to bring life with the sword of the Spirit. That's the commission. It's not to bring death. It's not a commission of death as Joshua's commission was. It's a commission of life. Go and bring life. What is the sword of the Spirit if not the Word of God? And what does the Word of God do? Beloved, it brings life. Ezekiel, speak, son of man. Speak to this valley of bones. Can they still live? Can those lost people around you? Think of the most lost people you know. You drive past. You work with. Go to school with. They live on your street. Seem utterly hopeless. It might even look like me. Is God's arm too short? If He can raise Jesus from the dead... Can he get them too? Notice as well, I'm going to come back to this point uh, in more forceful ways a little bit later, uh, but the commission given to the people of Israel was given to the whole people of Israel in a certain sense. I'm going to talk a little bit later about you know, the roles of lay people and pastors and evangelism and distinctions and that kind of good stuff. But let me just say right here, uh, there's a very profound sense in which the Great Commission in varying nuances is the work of the whole church. I, I just don't see a way around that. Quite welcome for the conversation. Jesus says, 
you as the church. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Both of those metaphors are designed to preserve. Salt preserves. It's life-giving, right? Light. In the ancient Near East, where you don't have street lights everywhere, if you're out in the dark traveling, you're with your family going through rolling hills like, I mean, what was that thing I drove up yesterday? I'm still recovering from that. My two-year-old thinks the hill out here is a mountain. From where we live in Florida, where the highest point in the entire state is like 200 feet, that is a mountain. If you're a two-year-old, it's a, whoa, it's a really big one. So if you're out in these uh, mountainous uh, highways and byways, light is a precious thing. Light keeps you from walking off the edge. Light shows you the way that you are to go. It's uh, no small wonder that the Bible refers to Jesus as the light of the world and as a church Huh, same thing, the church as a whole. Uh, Beloved, you are the light of the world. And God has called you. Your part in this story, this drama of redemption, is to see that what God began in the original mandate, right? The creation mandate, Genesis 1, that began with evangelism between the sheets and grows down into what He displayed in Noah promised in Abraham and then put on full-blown display in Israel that God's glory is going to go to the end of the nations. Israel was not supposed to trap that thing under a basket. It was to go. That's the whole point. It was to proclaim. And the church's role today is to be salt and light in the world until kingdom come. And by the way, that's exactly what Jesus says, right? Uh, until kingdom come, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go into all the world and preach, and I will be with you always for about 30 minutes. For a little while. Until it gets hard. No. The great promise is the greatest promise. What is the greatest promise God gives you? That's kind of a good question, actually. What's the greatest promise God gives you? He will be with us. I will be with you always. What guarantees that you'll be successful, that the church will see success in some fashion as God intends it uh, in this world as we try to carry out the Great Commission? It's the fact that Jesus has triumphed over sin and death and the resurrection. The Holy Spirit that raised Christ from the dead is still raising people from the dead. What's the great miracle? I get in conversations all the time. It seems like every other friend I have now is a Christian is also a charismatic one and has really bad theology. And everybody wants to see signs and miracles. Everybody wants uh, something extraordinary to happen. It's like dog, God has to do this little dog and pony show and make us clap in order for us to believe that he's real do you know what the great miracle is it's that god saves sinners that's the greatest miracle there is it's not whether or not he heals somebody's arm or gives somebody the ability to walk again Uh, you, you can get all that stuff back and you still die and if you die in your sins that didn't help you just extended the inevitable what's the greatest miracle beloved it's that god might actually save people and use his church to do that And that is our part in this beautiful story is that God is continuing to work a marvelous salvation and He does it through the work of the whole church in varying degrees, one fashion or another. So the question that I would like you to wrestle with, which we're not going to answer now, I'm staging the question, is where do you see yourself in the Great Commission? Where do you see yourself 
And God's big plan for the church to be salt of the earth and light of the world. Told in Philippians that we are children of the light in a dark world, in a crooked and twisted generation that is lost and perishing, blinded in confusion. The world around us is stumbling over itself, and yet uh, we know this lovely Savior named Jesus who says to the world, uh, if you are lost, I am the way. If you are confused, I am the life. And if you are dying, excuse me, I am the truth. Sorry, it's really great until I messed it up. Start it again. If you were lost, I am the way. If you were confused, I am the truth. And if you were dead in your sins, I am life. That's the story we've received with Grandpa Abraham. And it comes with commission to tell the world. In some part, some small part, some big part, you're all a part of this story. And the question is, where do you fit? So let's think about that some more in our next sessions. Let's stop now and pray. Lord, we find it a marvelous thing that just as you called creation out of darkness, out of nothing, you spoke and things came to pass that formerly did not exist. So similarly, your word now speaks And it speaks in such a way as to work life in the hearts of the dead. To work truth in the hearts of the confused. And it leads the way to those who cannot find their way through this world safely into heaven itself. And we thank you, Lord, that by your grace you've been pleased to show us the way, the truth, and the life that is in Christ. We thank you, O Lord, that you have led us by the city set on a hill and that you've preserved us by the salt of the earth. We ask now, Lord, that you'd help us to contemplate uh, where do we fit into this big and beautiful story. Uh, There are people here, young and old, who are wrestling with where do they fit. We all have a variety of questions, perhaps uh, even obstacles to engaging the idea that we too are called in some fashion uh, to share the gospel with others. And We ask, O Lord, that you would help us uh, to think your thoughts after you and to sense our purpose, not only in this world, but particularly in your church and in the carrying out of the Great Commission. As many struggle this day to have a clear sense of identity, Lord, help us to understand who we are, but far more importantly, who you are. That you are the God who not only made covenant, but keeps covenant. And your promise is an everlasting one that you will be with us. And since you are, O Lord, help us not to be afraid. Help us to be strong and very courageous. In Christ's name we pray, amen.